Bruce. Uh, this morning we've got two readings. You can see behind me there. The first one is uh, Isaiah 35, 1 to 7, and that's found on page 1000 and, sorry, 713. And then the second reading is Luke 7, 18 to 23, and that's on page 1034. So if you want to put two thumbs in to the Bible, we'll, uh, we'll jump into the reading. So Isaiah 35, 1-7. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. If we just fast forward to Luke, chapter 7, and we'll start at verse 18. Jesus and John the Baptist. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us, to, sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleaned, The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Everyone, welcome to church. It's good to see you. uh, Yes, I am this so-called inner city hipster. um, Anyway, my name's Pete, if you haven't met before, and it is good to see you. But we're going to get straight to work. uh, But before we do, let's, um, let's pray. Our wonderful Father in heaven, we thank you for another day. Another day that we know you are on the throne and that you are good. Father, you are so good that you came into human history as the man Jesus Christ. And I pray that today we will be floored by that. How radical that is that our God became man to come and save us. So Father, I pray that we would be challenged by that, but encouraged. Man, we would be encouraged by that. We ask and pray this for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, in 1971... Francis Macholiker, that's my old man, came over to um, Australia. He left his um, mother's bedside at a little hospital in Lidwood, Glasgow, in Scotland, to board a British Airways jet to Sydney. Now, it's fair to say that he was full of ambition about the future, pretty pumped for it, but he was even more full of stories, all right? And now, Linwood, they've got a couple of photos up here. Linwood was a rough place to grow up. It still is, and it maintains to this day a low socioeconomic status, That is true. It housed this uh, Chrysler factory back in the 60s and 70s and shipped 
cars all over Britain. And so it was, um, it was an obvious draw point for, for fathers to bring their families so they could raise them and uh, look after them, support them. And uh, pub brawls were common. This is my old man's area. Pub brawls were standard in this area, but especially uh, fights between football clubs, you know, football wars. You got the Protestant Rangers and then you got the Celtic Catholics. And these two would clash heads every week, standard. And uh, my dad was always in the thick of it. He's with his five brothers, Frankie, Johnny, Tommy, Joe, Rob, and James. And that's just the boys. They're always amongst it. And so in the 80s, I fondly remember um, my dad coming up to my room to tell my brother and I these stories. And we used to hit him up for them all the time. And if you know a Scotsman, they love a good story. And dad used to say to me, Peter, then he let the truth get in the way of a good story. He'd always say that to me. And uh, one story I recall often, he's like, come on. Tells me, he said, I was walking home from school one day in the snow, no less, of course, and, uh, and a group of boys approached him. And he knew these guys, they were local Linwood thugs, they called them. And so they're coming up the street, and uh, Dad crossed to the other side, and so did they. Eventually, they came together and they, they flogged my dad. I beat him senseless, knuckle dusters and all standard stuff. But anyway, this continued, this went on and on and on, and uh, it was especially because Dad's brothers weren't with him. And so eventually, one day, one day, Dad's brother, Uncle Tommy, good old Uncle Tommy, took matters into his own hands, and he settled this dispute once and for all. And now, I'm not going to condone violence here with you guys, but um, let's just say he did settle it, and from then on, they would cross the road when Dad was walking home from school. And uh, I used to get so fired up about this story, about my Uncle Tommy, what he did, and um, he became a kind of hero to me, I think it's fair to say, but an elusive one. Because he lived in Scotland, and uh, I couldn't afford to go over there. And so when I was 18, I jumped on a Qantas jet here from Sydney, a mascot, and I headed over to meet not only my family, but especially this Uncle Tommy. And I remember walking through the door of Uncle Tommy's house in Linwood. It's a grey day. It's always grey. And um, I I don't know what I expected to see there. This guy that I'd grown up, I was looking forward to meeting. I don't know if I expected to see him, you know, in the gym, mid-chin-up, couple of sets, doing some push-ups on the weight bench, a few hundred k's on the side. I don't know if that's what I was expecting to see, but that's certainly not what I got. Uh, when I came in, he was sitting there on his lounge, watching the football, of course, uh, ducking into some chips, a cheeky single malt, a local one. And uh, I actually didn't know if I'd walked into the wrong room or not. He was a little heavy on the front. And I remember thinking, oh, oh, is this, is this him, the one from the stories, Uncle Tommy? You know, I'd imagined him as a hero, and don't get me wrong, still love him, still love him very much. But it's, it's funny how the picture I had in my mind was quite different to the reality. Hence my question, in that, are, you, are you him? Now think about this, bring it close to home. Some of you have got children and the first day you sent them off to school, remember you take their photos out the front of the house, little Johnny's got his boater on out the front, he's, he's looking sharp, he's got all these expectations about what school is going to look like. I mean, I was certainly fired up for my first day of school. I think it took about two hours before I realised that school wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Hey? Was, huh, this is, this is me, hey, for the next 13 years. But mum, God bless her, would always reassure me. Another one, in Manly. We've got lots of surfers in Manly. And if you know a surfer, they get so fired up about the surf. Half the time, we do not know what we are talking about. It's like, we're going to go to the spot, it's going to be pumping. You get down there and you're like, huh, is that it? There's nothing doing. And then it's always reassuring to see one break across 
uh, the front of Queenscliff. But the last one, to help us get our heads around where we're going, have you ever made a meal for someone? And this meal, you've been pumped up, fired up all day, I'm going to cook pulled pork, I'm going to cook it for 12 hours, this thing is going to be delicious, I'm going to get my plums from the Amazon, I'm going to get my veggies from Argentina, it's all happening, and you're just about to serve it to your guests and you have a little taste and you're like, oh, is that it? Is that it? It's always nice when your guests reassure you and they say, ah, good job, good job. Let me connect these illustrations for us. In our text today, we have John the Baptizer, and his ministry has been a fiery one, to say the least. You know, this man has been telling everyone about this long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, who was finally come into the world. And so John's got these expectations in his mind about what that is going to look like and what life is going to look like now. But by the time we reach chapter 7, that was read for us, John's been arrested. So he's in prison, and if you know the narrative, it actually gets a lot worse for him. And so he's looking at Jesus and he's having this, huh, you know, was I right? I mean, are you him? Are you the one? So it's fair to say that Jesus has rattled John's expectations. And so now he's suffering from this moment of doubt. Life now that Jesus has come is not what what he was expecting. So this is why he starts to question. And now, if you are a believer here, if you love Jesus, then I'm sure you could relate to this. I know I can. So hopefully we're passionate about what we believe. We love Jesus, we get fired up for him. But there's nothing that brings that passion down to Chinatown quite as fast as then, to use Ella's words, when life sucks. And let's be honest, life does suck sometimes. It really does. You know, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, Jesus has come, the world is all sparkles and pygmy marmosets, it's all happening. No, the world is broken. People are sick. At Christmas, Christians celebrate God coming to earth. People are still lonely. Sometimes life can give you a right hook and make you doubt. Spend time, me, I'm looking at Jesus, I'm looking at the world, I'm looking at Jesus, I'm looking at the world and thinking, I don't know. Are you sure? Are you the one? Because I'm not feeling it. Sometimes our expectations as Christians may not match the reality and I think that can make us doubt what it is that we believe. But there's nothing like a little bit of reassurance to get us back on track and I think that is exactly what is happening today in our text. John is on this journey and some of us too are on this journey. So let me map this sermon for us so we can get our heads around it, give you some signposting for where we'll be going so that we can um, enter the story and get our heads into what's doing with John and this question and how we might be able to apply it to ourselves as we head towards the 21st, uh, 25th of December. So firstly, I think it's going to be helpful for us to ask, what is John actually asking when he says, are you the one? What's he asking? Secondly, why is he asking this particular question? And it's going to be very helpful to have a think about how Jesus responds to that question. So in the text, we've got five main characters There's John, he's got his two disciples, then you've got Luke, the guy who wrote the book, 
So he has something to say. And then there's Jesus as well. And they're all, they're all kind of around this central character, Jesus. They're all revolving around him. And they've got this question, are you the one? Reassure us. We need to know, we need to be reminded that we're on the right track here. So please, if you've got your um, Bibles or your Greek or your Hebrew scrolls, please roll them out down the aisle, keep them open. We're going to be hitting, hitting the text a bit together. So let's have a look. Verse 1. What is he asking? Uh, Verse 18, John's disciples told him about these things. So these things are the two previous miracles that Jesus has just done. This is the context. So there's the healing of the centurion's servant, but he's also uh, raised the widow's son from the dead. You know, standard Thursday stuff. And so calling the two of them, he, that's John, sent them to the Lord, and we'll come back to that title that Luke has used later, to ask him... Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So put quite simply, what he is asking here, he's asking Jesus, are you God's Messiah? Are you God's promised king who has come into the world to save his people? The one that all of the scriptures point to is at you. That's what he's asking. And so obviously there has to be some background to this question and that's why we read Isaiah. That's why it was our first reading. It was written 400 years before Christ came onto the scene. And so this prophet Isaiah speaks of God coming into the world to bring restoration, this renewal. And in that time, up on the screen, this is what it looks like. The desert and the parched lands will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice. It will rejoice greatly. and Shout for joy. And then they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And listen to this bit. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those who are with fearful hearts, be strong, don't fear. This is what John needs. So to continue, your God will come. That's our verb. With divine retribution, he will come. Three times it says that, to save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like deer and the mute tongues will shout for joy. God is coming. This is the background to John's question in our text today. My father, as I said, used to tell me stories as a youngster. John's dad, Zachariah, Elizabeth's hubby, you might remember him, he did exactly the same thing. And up on the screen is his bedtime story. This is what he's hearing. And so now, 30 years later, John's in ministry and life looks ordinary. And so he wants to know, Jesus, are you that guy? Are you him? Are you the one that dad told me about? That's what he's asking. But what interested me as I was reading through this and and, and studying through the text is, why did he ask this question? Why, Why is he asking this particular question to Jesus? So firstly, as we said earlier, John is, um, he's in prison and that's why he, he sends his disciples instead of going to Jesus himself. Luke's already told us that earlier in the book. And what John wants to know is why in the heck he is lonely, why he is dying in prison when this so-called God, God's Messiah was supposed to bring, back up on the screen, verse 4, vengeance, divine retribution. He will come to save you. He's, I mean... John trusts God. He does. Remember, he's struggling here because he's not seeing this. And so 
He's fading away in this stinky, filthy hole. Salvation to his people, retribution, I haven't seen that. Hence his question, and I, I think it's, he raises a, a good question. 16 years ago, as I said, when I walked into Uncle Tommy's lounge room, he wasn't what I was expecting. You know, he wasn't swimming laps, he wasn't sparring with his trainer to stick up for the next poor lad. I mean, he wasn't doing that. Instead, he's trying to get me to go down to the long, local Ponderosa with him for a cheeky pint. That's, that's what he was doing. It wasn't what I was expecting. John and his disciples have walked into Jesus' lounge room, as it were, and what they find is not what they're expecting. Not yet, anyway. People are still suffering. John is still suffering. He's still in prison. People are still lonely. I'm pretty sure Jesus is not overthrowing governments. Divine retribution. Sure, some people are healed, that's right, but the world's still a mess. Still a mess. Jesus on the surface is not what he's expecting. Instead, what does he get? From verse 20. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect another? Now listen to this because the narrator Luke here has something to add. Verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. What does John learn here? What does John see? Does he see glory? Does he see retribution? No. He finds Jesus in the slums. That's where he finds him. He finds Jesus with the poor, with the diseased, those possessed by evil. He is shoulder to shoulder in the trenches with every other Joe Blow, caring for them, loving them. The narrator gives us this insight into Jesus' ministry because he knows. He knows who Jesus is. That's why Luke calls him Lord. But it's interesting that Jesus actually responds himself. And so I want us to have a look at this now. How does Jesus respond to this particular question? Go back to the text again up on the screen. So they ask him, are you the one in verse 22? So he, that's Jesus, replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. You can almost see the disciples walking away and thinking, a simple yes or no would have sufficed to that question. Jesus gives his life story. I mean, he gives his resume, doesn't he? He gives his resume. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. He gives his resume and he says, you decide. You decide who I am. Am I just another man, another good man come to do good things? Or am I the God man who has come to do the ultimate thing? You decide. You boys have seen the evidence. You've seen it for yourselves. You decide. Who else has this authority to heal? Who else? One theologian puts it um, more much more eloquently than I can. He says, in this passage, Luke used John the Baptist as a foil for those in his own day who argued that Jesus could not be the promised one in the Old Testament because he did not fulfill their particular conception about what the Messiah or the Christ would look like. Yet, to those willing to look at the evidence, 
Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament messianic promises. God has indeed visited his people. Jesus gives his resume. He gives his resume. Am I the one come to redeem and to save? Look at the evidence and you decide. Step away. Step away, Jesus says, from any preconceived ideas that you might have about me or about life with me. If you're Jewish and you don't believe that God is the Messiah or a Muslim and you think that Jesus is just another prophet or a scientist, and I don't mean all scientists, please don't hear me say that, but a scientist who believes that God becoming a man is not coherent or intelligible, the words of John Hick, step away from what your father taught you at your bedside, what your teachers taught you at school, what traditions you were born into, step away from that. Have a look at the evidence and you decide who I am. Back to Isaiah's words. Got them there. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue shout for joy. And Jesus' words, right beside it. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, praise God. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. You see the remarkable similarities? See what Jesus is saying about himself here? And Jesus did these things. People witnessed it. They were there. And letting John know this, Jesus knows will be enough to encourage his heart while he languishes in prison. He knows this will be enough to reassure him. Regardless, brother, of what you are going through, your God has indeed come to earth to visit his people. It's just not in the way that you thought. So John's, John's journey is that he is uh, fired up. He's got these preconceived ideas. And then his life starts to really suck. And he doubts whether Jesus is a saviour. But he's then reassured. Are you the one? You bet I am. That's what Jesus is saying. You bet. So I guess the question for us then is how do we respond to this in the lead up to Christmas? Well, I think Luke's last words here, Jesus' words in um, 7.23 that Luke records, unlocks this for us. He says, blessed is anyone, that's Jesus, who does not stumble on account of me. He's harking back here to Isaiah's words that we read earlier. Sorry, I'm just going to be a Southern Baptist preacher here and dab my brow. He's harking back to Isaiah's words, isn't he? The words we read before. Jesus wants to, in this reassurance to John, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, don't fear. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Jesus wants to reassure you. He doesn't want you to stumble in doubt because of what life looks like. He wants to reassure you that your God has indeed come to earth and this is what it looks like. He is in the slums. He is with his people, loving them, serving them, even to the point of death on a cross. We know that story. So if you, I don't know what you are going through, but if you are feeling abandoned, if you are going through some sort of struggle in your life, then this is for you to be reassured that your God has come to earth. Particularly as we head towards Christmas, right? I mean, 
It can be a very lonely time for some people. And so this is very reassuring. So I think one way we can respond to this immediately is to, why don't we invite someone over for Christmas dinner with your family this year? It's a way to immediately act on this. Worth bearing in mind. I think Luke wants believers to read this account, pick up your Bible over and over again and read it and ask Jesus, are you the one? Why do I say that? Because when life starts to break you, when life starts to break you and you start to doubt your God, when you start to doubt why he hasn't intervened, why things haven't stopped, then you can read this account and be reminded. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, your God has come and he is coming to bring the restoration that he promised. Because it's true that we do live in a now but not yet state, as some theologians like to put it. And it's a good way to put it. The world remains broken. And you read Isaiah, we get that read to us and like, ah, you know, and it's, I'm like, all this stuff hasn't happened yet. Not all of it. I mean, I don't see the desert and the parched land being glad. I mean, I didn't notice that on my way here. I haven't seen the wilderness rejoicing I haven't seen this divine judgment and retribution on the scale that Isaiah is talking about here. But we will. Because if the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, God is at work and he will bring all of his promises to fulfilment when he comes again. And so this passage, I think, is designed not only to reassure you, but, to, but also to help you anticipate what is to come. This beautiful future that awaits God's people when he comes in all his glory. But what about non-believers? Those of you here who don't love Jesus, I'm sure you've got your own reasons for that. But what, what might this have to say to you? Believers are reassured. But for non-believers, I think this evidence is presented, obviously not to reassure you, but to assure you. To assure you that God has come to earth in Jesus Christ and that he came for you to save you. And he wants you desperately to step away from those preconceived ideas that you might have about him and about what life looks like with him and at least ask the question, are you the one? Are you the one? And if you do that and believe, then this divine punishment and all these things we're talking about, they're not for you because Christ has already taken it on the cross. Jesus does not want you to stumble on him He wants you to be blessed by him. And so to finish, when you ask, when you need to ask, God, are you the one? Like Jesus, are you the one? Please be reassured that your God has indeed put on his overalls and come into human history, into the mud, to be with his people, to save them. This is unexpected. But know this. Be assured by this and then it won't be unexpected when he does come again in all his glory to make all things new once and for all. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we we want to thank you that you are good as we prayed earlier and uh, I pray that you would stir our hearts this morning to recall how radical it is that you have come into this world And that regardless of what we are going through, that we could be assured that our God has indeed come to earth and that he loves us desperately. 
longs to be in relationship with us. So I pray that we'd be encouraged by that, but also pray for those who are wrestling with this. Father, that they will continue to do that so that one day they may come to believe and be blessed by you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.